Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point, the audio program note that you can listen to in your car, walking to the theater, or in the peace and quiet of your own home. Hard as it is to believe, we've reached the very end of our season this year with San Francisco Ballet. Alexei Rutmansky's Shostakovich trilogy caps off our season in style with a voyage into the life, psyche, and of course, music of Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich. This ballet is unique in that it consists of three ballets, all to music by the same composer, all choreographed by the same choreographer, but that, while related, really remain distinct ballets. This production is kind of a hybrid between a triple bill evening and a full-length work. I liken it to George Balanchine's Jewels, but with very different subject matter. So in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about Alexei Rutmansky and Dmitry Shostakovich, hear from Nancy Rafa, who's an American ballet theater ballet master and Rutmansky's close collaborator, and from Martin West, our music director and principal conductor, and find out what to look for in each of the three ballets that make up this evening. Sound good? Then let's get to the point. Let's start by chatting a bit about Alexei Rutmansky, whom the New Yorker has called the most sought-after man in ballet. Is that true? Quite possibly, or at least he's up there with Justin Peck and Christopher Wheeldon, two other choreographers featured on this year's season. He's a Benoit de la Danse recipient, twice, and a MacArthur Genius Grant awardee, as well as the choreographer-in-residence at American Ballet Theater. So how did he get here? Well, first, he was a dancer. Born in Leningrad, Rutmansky trained at the Moscow State Academy of Choreography, what we normally refer to as the Bolshoi Ballet Academy, before joining the National Ballet in Ukraine. He was a soloist there before moving on to the Royal Winnipeg and then the Royal Danish Ballets, where he danced the work of choreographers including George Balanchine, Frederick Ashton, Anthony Tudor, and John Neumeyer, alongside all of the big classics. Rutmansky began choreographing early while he was a dancer in Ukraine, and his career really began to take off in the early 2000s. He made a nutcracker for the Royal Danish and several ballets for the Mariinsky, including a Cinderella. And in 2003, he made his first big mark with a ballet to Shostakovich, The Bright Stream, which premiered at the Bolshoi Ballet. It was around the same time as the premiere of The Bright Stream that he first came to San Francisco. We were actually the first U.S. company to commission his work back in 2003. And this process resulted in Carnival of the Animals, which some of you may have seen. The Brightstream's success back in Moscow led to a surprise invitation to be the artistic director of the Bolshoi Ballet when he was just 36. Trained there, but having never danced for the company, his appointment was somewhat controversial, but he was key in bringing that company into the 21st century, and he held the role for five years. It was his work, however, at New York City Ballet that really began his rapid rise in the United States. Both Russian seasons from 2006, and which San Francisco audiences saw here in 2009, and Concerto DSCH, made in 2008, made huge impressions on both critics and fans, and contributed to his leaving the Bolshoi in 2009 after being at its head for five years to join American Ballet Theater as their choreographer-in-residence. He was the first to take up that post at ABT, and as such, he makes at least one new work annually for that company, while maintaining a productive freelance choreographic schedule. Interestingly, San Francisco Ballet has been a beneficiary of that relationship, co-producing both Rutmansky's Shostakovich trilogy and next year's premiere of the seasons with American Ballet Theater. 
The last 10 years since Ritmanski's move to New York have established him as one of the most important choreographers currently working in the classical idiom, as he stretched his gifts in multiple ways, from reconstructing lost Marius Petipa ballets from the 19th century, to creating shorter chamber works for companies around the world, to crafting ambitious projects like the Shostakovich trilogy in 2013. His ballets show formal innovation, a mastery of classical style, a sense of narrative coherence. They're contemporary, but they don't look like the contemporary ballet of a William Forsythe or a David Dawson. And they're classical, even neoclassical, but push well beyond the various Balanchine imitators of the late 20th century. Instead, Ratmansky's created a style all his own, one that emerges out of the combination of his Soviet training and his Western European dance career, a kind of Russian expat aesthetic for the 21st century. And Soviet composer Dmitry Shostakovich has been an important figure and inspiration for Ratmansky as he's developed his choreographic career. ABT ballet master Nancy Rafa gives us a sense of the importance of Shostakovich to Ratmansky in an interview taped here in San Francisco in 2014. Yes, Alexi, Alexi explained to me that from a very young age, as a young boy, um, he would plug into Shostakovich's music um, because it just it, it resonated with mm -hmm. him. There was something about how Shostakovich composed, how emotional the music was, how um, beautiful and moving it was, and... Uh, a, a beautiful venue to work with dance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it, it inspired him from a young age in the school he mm -hmm. said in school he was already listening to many of the compositions mm -hmm. and I think the younger generation of Russian artists, dancers in particular but musicians and artists also, other artists um, have Shostakovich as a, a mentor and an idol because of what he represented and because he grew up in a time and became the artist that he did um, during the Stalin regime, mm. during a very repressed moment, yet he stayed very true to who he was, what he believed, and what he wanted to express as an artist. And I think that gave a role model to the younger generation of, of Russian artists, and Alexei is amongst that that population. So who was Shostakovich, really? In short, one of the most important composers of the 20th century, but one whose career, like that of all Soviet artists, was at the whim of an oppressive government, and who, for all of his success, was twice denounced for formalism, and his work heavily censored in his lifetime. I'll let Martin West, our music director and principal conductor, tell you a bit about who Shostakovich was as an artist. Um... Well, Shostakovich, you have to understand, uh, I think for most musicians, is, is I think most musicians you talk to would consider him one of the really great, mm -hmm. great composers of the 20th century. Possibly the, the, the longest lasting. We don't know that yet, but it really, uh, his, his output was incredible. And, and was truly able to create incredibly um, deep music, as well as, as, as fun music. And what we forget as Westerners is for, for the Russian people, Shostakovich wasn't just the great composer which was revered. He was a populist composer. He was greatly, greatly popular. And it's actually the, that was the thing that saved his life at times because he was able to provide popular music for the masses as well. He started his life out by playing piano in a, in a movie theater 
for, for his, you know, accompanying the, the movie theatre, silent movies. And, but it was able to bring all, all popular culture together and make pieces of music, which you hear tonight, you know, you hear popular music. The, the first piano concerto has, has Russian folk, uh, street themes in and it has all sorts of other ridiculous bits of uh, Beethoven and all sorts of things intertwined into this one whole thing, which is a madcap. Rotmansky's made a name for himself working with Shostakovich's music, including making works to two of Shostakovich's three ballets, The Bolt from 1931 and The Bright Stream from 1935, which I've already mentioned. Both of these pieces were censored by the government and thus rarely performed. But Rotmansky also works with Shostakovich's non-dance music, not least in this ballet, which takes three different Shostakovich pieces to create a full evening. This idea to make a full evening ballet out of Shostakovich's work isn't necessarily an obvious one. Shostakovich's work can be as challenging as it is beautiful. And as Nancy Rafa explains, Rutmansky didn't exactly have a fully thought through plan when he walked into the studio. The original idea of putting an evening together of Shostakovich work was to take three pieces that most resonated with Alexei and put them on in the same evening um, in a way as a tribute to Shostakovich or homage, as I've been corrected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember Alexei saying, uh, you know, we're going to do a full evening of his work, and I know it's very ambitious, but I have to do it. It's something that I have to do before I finish my career. And I asked him, I said, do you have an idea of of what you're going to do, because that's a lot of Shostakovich for one evening, and his music is very intense and very deep and very intricate, very complicated to count. It was crazy to try to learn the musicality, and Alexei is an extremely musical choreographer. He doesn't like to choreograph the music literally, so we're constantly working with syncopations and Mm -hmm. different rhythms that counterbalance what the composer's actually writing. So I asked him, you know, what what are you going to do? He goes, Nancy, all I know is we have three different pieces of music, and the music is Shostakovich, and we start rehearsals on Monday, and that's how we began. So what did come out of that rehearsal? Well, something the New York Times calls a, quote, fascinating, thrilling, bewilderingly ambiguous evocation of life in Shostakovich's Russia. High praise. So the evening opens with Symphony Number no. 9. As an opener, it works brilliantly, setting up themes that reappear throughout the evening. The music is Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 9 in E-flat major, Opus 70, Written at the conclusion of World War II, it was commissioned to be a celebration of Joseph Stalin and Russia's victory. But instead, Shostakovich wrote a fun, even at moments, funny piece. It was perceived as mocking Stalin, and three years after its premiere, the work was banned during Shostakovich's second denunciation. So let's hear Nancy Rafa talk talk a bit about the music and what Rutmansky does choreographically in this piece. Shostakovich was supposed to write a symphony that... Um, honored and um, exalted Russia's um, achievement in the war and, mm. uh, and, and their triumph right. as um, saviors of the war in a way. And he began composing it, and a few months into composing it, he stopped writing and left the work 
um, and then came back to it and finished it. And everyone was expecting a very Mozart Requiem type of composition where there were many pieces in the orchestra, uh, big triumphant uh, themes that were praising the regime. Uh, they were even expecting voices in a chorus. And Shostakovich actually came up with Symphony Number no. 9, which is extremely ironic and sarcastic in many, in many ways. For a compo Alexei was explaining to us in rehearsals, for a composer to write the theme, da, 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 is almost ridiculous. And so in a way, um, parts of the symphony are ironic like that and other parts are extremely deep and dramatic. Mm -hmm. So he's expressing a mocking of Russia, of the regime, of the hypocrisy of the time, and expressing at the same time the deeper, more realistic feelings that people, especially artists in the socialist system, were feeling at the time. They this were feeling, and so there's, uh, Alexi explained to us, Symphony Number no. 9, there's no particular story to the ballet, but there's a lot of meaning. So each movement, became, as he created it, an expression of these different um, meanings and emotions that Shostakovich was giving to how he felt about where he lived in the time that he lived in. First movement is the irony, and the two leads are kind of representing the authorities, and the dance, the court of ballet dancers are representing the officials that have to follow those orders. And he explained this like, just imagine you're at a cocktail party where the next day the authorities are writing the, uh, signing the papers for execution. So there's a, um, a bit of sarca sarcasm in the first, uh, even though they're having fun, there's sarcasm in the first movement. Second movement is expressing the fear in a way that Shostakovich with his wife felt living in those times. Third movement is in between those times, like the before danger, and then living through, trying to go through the motions of quotidian life, living in an environment that's not very safe. And then the fourth movement is reality, is you wake up and find your best friend is not living in his apartment anymore and nobody can find where he is. Shostakovich lost a lot of very dear friends that were also musicians. So the fourth movement is very symbolic for uh, the military, loss, um, sadness, um, fear, all of those qualities. And fifth movement is a collaboration and... Um, kind of uh, highlighting everything that came previously, bringing everything to a head and um, looking for hope. There's a little section that he used to call at the sea, and you'll see the dancers doing movements that kind of represent waves, and that's um, 
the, the, the hope that the Russian people felt at that time that perhaps beyond where we live, over there, over the sea, there'll be a hope one day that we can, together, they hold hands and they sway, together we can move forward and find our way as a people. And then with, within Symphony Number no. 9, there's a, a one principal male dancer that represents, um, he said, it's the angel, it's the part of ourselves as human beings that hold on to hope even when there's tragedy and difficulty. And he's the uh, representation of, of a better way, of a hopeful way, of a, of, a, of a light at the end of the tunnel in our lives. So he weaves in and out of the ballet and everything is symbolic, everything is abstract, but the, if, it's, if it's done well, um, there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of deep meaning behind what's happening physically. And it is physically very challenging, stamina-wise, the dancers don't stop. In terms of what to look for here, notice the distinctions between the leading dancers. The first couple you meet isn't actually the main couple of the ballet, but instead a kind of archetypical, perfect Soviet pair, dancing steps loosely inspired by Russian folk dance. It's the second couple who are perhaps Shostakovich and his wife. And then there's a third leading man. Watch for him. He's a bit of an ambiguous figure. I'm curious what you guys think he's up to. The second ballet in the evening is the most narrative and biographical of the three works, a shift in perspective tied to the music itself. Shostakovich's chamber symphony was a very personal piece for the composer. So here's how Martin West describes it. Chamber Symphony, which started life as a quartet, eighth quartet. And he wrote this in, I think it was 1960, in three days, which is absolutely mind-boggling to me that you could have even written it down in three days, let alone composed it. Uh, and in, all the way through that ballet is uh, four very important notes to Shostakovich. D, E flat, C, B. He goes, da, 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 doom. And you'll hear it over and over again. And those notes, uh, long story, translated into German become D-S-C-H, which in German is Dmitri Shostakovich, the first letters of his name. So uh, for him, it was autobiographical. And he used that theme many, many times in his, um, in his output. Uh, but the, the Eighth Quartet was where he used it perhaps the most and most uh, insistently. And um, he dedicated the work to the to victims of fascism and, fascism and war. But really, for him, it was an autobiographical thing. And he quotes in that particular quartet many pieces which were very important to him uh, there was uh, there's a quote from the opera Lady Macbeth at Mitzens which was the, the, the work which was uh, uh, denounced by by the, uh, the authorities and which made him have to stop writing for a little while and he nearly nearly got killed for it you know mm-hmm. and uh, towards the end of uh, the ballet uh, of, the, of the piece and he quotes from his first uh, symphony uh, which is obviously the, the piece that put him into international stardom when he was 18 years old and he quotes from the cello uh, concerto, all sorts of little things, all there. But it, uh, he said himself, it was a, he thought of it as a summing up of his life. And um, I understand that he actually intended to commit suicide after he had written it. But uh, luckily for us, he didn't. We, uh, he he lasted another 10, 15 years after that. So Ramonsky took these autobiographical underpinnings in the music and created a ballet that traces the outline of, of Shostakovich's three great love affairs. His first love, Tatiana Glivenko, his wife, Nina Varzer, who was the mother of his children and who died in 1954, and his third wife, Irina Supinskaya, who was just 27 when she married the 56-year-old Shostakovich in 1962. 
Nancy Rafa gives us a few more details about this ballet. In the ballet, there's three principal women, and they represent the three loves of Shostakovich's life. The youngest love um, that he had, which was first love, puppy love. Um, he was with that woman for six years, never proposed to her. She waited for him to propose. He was too shy as a young boy to actually do that, and he lost her. He, she went with another man, and he was devastated by that. He had a couple of other not so great relationships until he met the woman that he did actually have a family with and she was the fortress of his life. He was able to get through all of the challenges that the political situation at the time put him through with this woman who really was the backbone of the whole household. And then he lost her suddenly and his life was broken. I remember Alexi telling me that um, the very first thing that came out of Shostakovich's mouth when he lost his wife was, who's going to take the children to school? She was that much of a foundation for him. So he, he was devastated and for, went through a major depression uh, after that loss. And later on, as an, as an older man uh, in his 60s, he met another woman, which was his last wife, that was a... Um, very mature, very grounding relationship. And she was the woman that saw him through the last of his days. And um, she's still alive, and she actually came to ABT's premiere of the Shostakovich evening. It was a great honor to have her in the audience and have her presence there. Positioned in the center of the evening, this ballet seems to hold the evening's heart. The three women and the central man as artist seem in some way a reference to George Balanchine's seminal ballet, Apollo, which also revolves around a man and three women, or rather, a god and three muses. Choreographed in 1928, after leaving the Soviet Union, there's a way in which Apollo, and even maybe Balanchine himself, offer a counterpoint to this work and to Shostakovich as an artist. Shostakovich is the artist who stayed, right? Balanchine, Stravinsky are the artists who left. So here, watch for a moment toward the end of the ballet, when, as in Apollo, the central figure seems to transcend his humanity and become, perhaps not quite a god, but an immortal artist. Finally, the final section of the ballet, Concerto Number no. 1, is perhaps the most abstract and visually arresting of the three. The dancers are clad in gray and revolutionary red, and a series of Soviet-esque objects hang from the ceiling. There's no real story to follow here, but there is a theatricality and a kind of anxiety that rests just below the ballet's athletic, playful surface. Yet, this ballet wasn't always intended to be quite what it is. So let's hear Nancy Rafa talk about how this piece came about. It actually is funny how this ballet came about. We were supposed to use Symphony Number no. 1, and we got in the studio, and it wasn't working. Nothing was coming out. <laughs> the dancers couldn't follow the music. Alexi was stuck. It just was one of those moments, nightmare moments for an artist where nothing was working. So that weekend, I went to my mom's nursing home, who's a ballet pianist, and I was like, Mom, help me count this out because we're having so much trouble in the studio Monday morning came, and I was like, Alexi, I figured out the counts. We're going to be able to, like, figure this section out. And he goes, no, I scratched it all. Like, we're not using that. Different choreography, <laughs> different music, piano concerto number one. And we took that music. He used the choreography. He started with um, symphony number one, put it to piano concerto number one, and everything just snowballed. It just went. It just flowed. And that's what we came up with tonight. It's 
dancing to the music. Concerto Number no. 1 is one of Shostakovich's earliest compositions. Concerto Number no. 1 for piano, trumpet, and strings, written in 1933. And written in 1933, it is the oldest of the three pieces used in Ratmansky's Shostakovich trilogy. It quotes from a variety of other composers' music, including Beethoven's Appassionata, which you might have heard earlier this season as part of Kaleidoscope, or Program 2. And Martin West here will tell us a little bit more about this piece of music. And then the piano concerto was written early on in his life, and as I said before, it's it's a madcap, Mm -hmm. uh, brilliant combination of all sorts of things. Uh, He wrote it for himself so that he could uh, go around playing playing it, so he could get out and Get to, get to perform. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. It's, people call it, it's called the Concerto for Piano, Trumpet, and Strings. And originally, when he wrote it, he meant it to be a, a trumpet concerto. And then he added the piano part so that he could play. And then he wrote so much of the piano part that it became the piano concerto. And in fact, although it's <laughs> now called the Concerto for Trumpet and Strings, really the trumpet is part of the orchestra. It has a few solos, but nothing really huge, I don't think. It's my own personal opinion. This ballet has a sense of nostalgia to it, a kind of camaraderie, a sense of fun and humor, but also a kind of yearning for a lost world. It's purely abstract and extremely sculptural, with the individual dancers creating shapes with their bodies, and also the full group coming together to create large-scale visual pictures. This kind of shaping of space is one of the things that Rutmansky is really known for, and it's on high display here in Concerto Number no. 1. And that is the Shostakovich Trilogy, and it is the end of our 2019 season. Uh, This ballet is one of those that rather exceeds words, so I really do hope you can all come see it. Rutmansky is truly a master at work and at the height of his powers, so this is a can't-miss event this year. Of course, if you do miss it, you can catch it in London at the end of May. We're air freighting out the sets and costumes as soon as the curtain comes down on May 12th so that we can open our tour to Sadler's Wells on May 29th with this ballet. For more on that, check out our popular Meet the Artist podcast. We did a whole talk on touring logistics as part of a pre-performance talk last month. You can find it on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. If you hit subscribe, you will get our episodes downloaded as soon as they are posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Store and reach out on any social media platform. We're pretty much always at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you, and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Also, a heartfelt thank you for listening all year as I've talked to all of you. We will be back next season for sure, but keep an eye, or I guess an ear, out for some potential bonus content over the summer in this feed. And as always, I hope to see you at the Opera House very soon. Thank you.